Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. The accrued hidden cost of war is often paid behind closed doors. So says U.S. Marine Corps veteran Sherman Gillums Jr., who, during his 12-year service in the Marines, earned two Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medals, a Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal, and a Global War on Terror Service Medal. Officer Gillum's service in the Marines ended at age 29 when he sustained a cervical spine injury. He received an honorable discharge from military service as a commissioned officer, and after two years of successful rehabilitation, went on to pursue a new career in advocacy for veterans with disabilities. He currently serves as the Executive Director of Paralyzed Veterans of America, the only congressionally chartered veteran service organization dedicated solely for the benefit and representation of veterans with spinal cord injury or disease. Officer Gillums has written opinion pieces for the New York Times and The Hill. He's spoken on television news programs on behalf of veterans. He is routinely quoted in national publications, and he's testified before Congress as an expert witness on veterans' benefits. U.S. Marine Corps veteran Sherman Gillums Jr. joins us from Washington, D.C., and I am thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise podcast. I appreciate the opportunity, Jenna. This is a really important topic, and uh, anytime we can get the word out uh, in support of their efforts, uh, it's a great thing for Paralyzed Veterans of America. I am very grateful for your service. And before we get into the gist of the conversation, I would just love to know more about why you chose to serve and uh, a little bit more about your background. Sure. The the why, uh, it's, it's a big mystery whenever you try to get inside of the, the head of a kid uh, who, who goes into the military because the pull of service is, is something that you know kind of depends on where you're from, whether you've had family that served. I think that may be the case for me where I followed a group of mostly men, uncles, uh, my father, grandfather, who all served in the military. And the Marine Corps was just, uh, you know, the dress blues, the, the mystique of being a Marine. That That's what got me. And I was uh, 17 years old, so of course you hadn't lived a whole lot when you're making decisions at that time, but it was a good thing. It was the best decision I ever made, and it set me on a trajectory to serve probably the rest of my life, no matter what. So even after I got out of the Marine Corps, I still felt the pull of service, and and that's why I'm here today as an advocate for the most uh, severely wounded and injured veterans and their caregivers. What did you enjoy about the military? And give us a little bit of information on what you did and where you were deployed. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess the, the biggest thing I enjoyed about the military was having a purpose. No matter what job uh, I had, there was always a purpose. There, were always, there was always something you had to get up to accomplish. I was in during 9-11 after it happened, and mm-hmm. I would say the day before that, September 10th, you know, there was a real strain. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the services were being downsized. Uh, you know, nothing had happened. Uh, the, the Gulf War made us feel invincible, and so you didn't have the same sense of purpose. I actually thought about getting out to become a New York State trooper at that time, oh, wow. but 
September 11th changed every. I mean, it's 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 sort of a commonplace to hear that, but uh, it did change everything. The day every Marine woke up, and I imagine every soldier, uh, sailor, and airman, you knew why you were there, and you were going to have a major role in our response to that. Now, I was injured in a vehicle accident before I got to deploy, and that was in 2002. So mm-hmm. this was relatively soon after the Twin Towers fell. Um, so when I was in the hospital at San Diego beginning my rehabilitation, it was very heartbreaking to know that I wouldn't be a part of that. But I think God knew what he was doing. He um, put me in a position to be here to help the folks that did go, and I would see him coming in. In fact, my first case was a, a young Marine who had tried to kill himself. I mean, that's the suicide issue mm. is so real yeah. for, for us. This is an abstract, So, it, but he, uh, he tried to kill himself because he had he had a pre-existing mental condition, believe it or not, mm-hmm. that and the Marine Corps deployed him anyway. So um, these were very real, sobering cases that were coming before me. And because I had been injured in the way I did, I didn't bear the, the other scars like PTSD, but I did have the actual injury. And I was able to mentor quite a few uh, young men and women through this initial phase of finding a new identity once you've been paralyzed this way. And today I get to see them, you know, here it is, what, 15 years later, um, and they still thank me, but it's really about paying it forward because the only way I got here was by having uh, peer mentors myself. Yeah. And how are you doing now? What are your biggest challenges? Well, for me personally? Yeah. I want to know who cares uh, for you before we get into well, everyone else. <laughs> sure. Well, I have, a, we have a, I have a pretty unique story. My wife is my caregiver. She's okay. also an Afghanistan war veteran. You know, she survived a suicide bombing in Kabul, and, and so she had, it's, it's sort of a, a weirdly but real dynamic that you'll see more and more where the caregiver is often somebody who was in the military as well and may have deployed and, and have and bear some of the scars, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. So she's a, she's a special woman, of course, because she's done all that, but she's also the person that, you know, helps me tie my tie and get my shoes laced to drive into uh, Washington, D.C. every morning. Mm-hmm. So she continues to be, you know, an amazing example of a caregiver, which is why I'm so passionate about making sure that people know what these people do. They're doing it behind closed doors, as I said in the article. And uh, they don't want medals or trophies. Some cases, not even a thank you. They just want support when they need it. And so that's really what it's about. And how many paralyzed veterans are there in the U.S.? We estimate about 60,000 paralyzed veterans live in the U.S. And paralysis includes those with multiple sclerosis, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, various spinal cord diseases that can happen to an individual. Some were injured due to, you know, medical malpractice, uh, and, and you'd be surprised how many uh, cases we see of that. But, of course, traumatic traumatic injury due to vehicle accidents, motorcycle accidents, falls, you know, victims of violence, things like that. But about 60,000, um, and, and, and the fact remains that they're living with the injury longer So um, as those numbers grow because of those things that occur anyway, where they might have, you know, started to die off as new ones were becoming new injuries, Mm -hmm. um, they're not dying as fast. Mm -hmm. So that number is going to grow over time as as these veterans live longer. Right. Longevity affects -hmm. affects us in ways that I think a lot of people wouldn't have even thought of, those of us who are not connected to the military. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us more about Paralyzed Vets of America. How many chapters are there, and what is the organization's mission? 
Well, this is great because we rarely, you know, if you don't know any paralyzed veterans, you probably would never hear about us. That's why it was important for me to, you know, express some thought leadership um, in the, in the uh, task and purpose piece. Mm-hmm. But Paralyzed Veterans of America is, uh, we turned 71 years old. We were founded in 1946 mm-hmm. as veterans were t- returning from uh, World War II. They came back to a society that uh, was inaccessible physically. Civil rights were being violated. Medicine hadn't caught up with the needs. You know, you don't die from a spinal cord injury. You die from infection or you mm-hmm. die from the wrong type of care. And so mm-hmm. that's, that was happening. In fact, many people don't know that uh, General George S. Patton died of a spinal cord injury residual, which was infection, I believe. Hmm. He didn't die from the injury itself. He died from the infection that followed. Now, so here was a, you know, a war hero. And he couldn't get the best of care. So care wow. was just really insufficient at that time. And so you had these veterans who were young. They were injured, but they were young and, and vital. And they would take it to Congress. And they formed this chapter. I think they all met at the Heinz VA Medical Center in Illinois. That was the first meeting. And then mm-hmm. they had the, uh, the first convention that followed. And you had this convening of paralyzed veterans from all over the country who decided we're going to do this ourselves? And you know the political pressure, the, the pressure on society to acknowledge their existence, all that became the the identity behind this organization that now stands for things like caregiver advocacy, making uh, society more accessible. Uh, you know, in terms of the architectural design of all these places where people can go, and so many other things. I mean, we have a sports program, we have a medical uh, health policy, government relations. We do so many things, and it's really for the benefit of the whole individual who has become paralyzed. So it's not just one thing or two things we do. We try to restore the entire individual. So we have all these programs that embody uh, how we do that. Yeah. I did read that you've got uh, more than 70 offices and 34 chapters. You serve veterans, their families, and their caregivers in all 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. The article that I read that really sparked my interest was in Task and Purpose. The article that you wrote is titled, It's Time to Expand VA Support to All Military Caregivers. And in Mm -hmm. this article, you applauded the passage of the Caregivers and Veterans Omnibus Health Services Act of 2010, but the ways that it also falls short for pre-9-11 veterans. Talk about Mm -hmm. that a little bit, what, what it does for veterans and what it doesn't do. Right. Well, at the at the time that the law was passed, it was important for us to take care of the young caregivers who were shouldering the burden with all these you know these men and women who were coming back all grievously injured. I mean, these were injuries that you ordinarily wouldn't survive in past wars, but because medicine has gotten great and, and equipment has gotten great, now you can live without all four limbs. But it becomes one or two or three, you know, one family's or one individual's burden Mm -hmm. to be alone with that individual every day, getting him or her dressed, um, doing medical appointments, all those things. So the Congress and public recognized the need to have this comprehensive program given to these caregivers from the post-9-11 era. But before that, there was no real, you know, there was no comprehensive strategy for supporting caregivers. And so it was great that we have caregivers that are being taken care of, but now you've got these other ones on the outside whose husbands or or even wives maybe served in past wars and were also injured in that same way, but they're not getting that service. Mm -hmm. And they know they've lived with the the pain longer of not having this support, and we don't think that's right. We think that if you fought for this country and your caregiver is the only one who's keeping you out from from being um, a permanent inpatient in a hospital, there should be something you know, that's offered to those caregivers as well. And 
the discussion, however, took a turn because the caregivers who were on the program, the post 9-11 caregivers, they started to have issues because they were somewhere being kicked off the program for reasons that weren't well explained by VA. Some were being reduced. Uh, there are several tiers mm-hmm. that determine the level of benefits you get. Well, some were being reduced to different tiers because the impression was that their care recipient was getting better and therefore the caregiver didn't need as much support. So when that started happening, it forced all of us to collectively revisit the Comprehensive Caregiver Act to see if it was sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in addition, and in addition to that, revisit the question of whether it's now time to expand it to other groups, which, to be frank, was part of the deal in the beginning. You know, we, we never agreed to support just one era of caregivers. Right. We always said that you need to expand this once you know that it works. We know that it works and it's imperfect, but what I don't want to do is have this program stalled in terms of expanding it to other eras simply because it's imperfect. It's my understanding that the program was implemented in 2011. It was designed for four to 5,000. It now has grown to nearly 23,000 approved caregivers. What is the application process like? It must vary somewhat, but how does one go about getting these benefits? What happens is, is it's you know, of course it begins once a loved one is injured and they usually get, you know, uh, recover at a VA hospital somewhere. Right. The okay. social worker or the case manager will explore whether there's eligibility. And it's not that hard. I mean, if the individual's grievously injured, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The issue today, though, is you've got folks that have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a hidden injury. Mm-hmm. And so the question of whether those folks need caregivers is not as black and white. So they go through a screening, and if it appears that there's eligibility, the case manager or whoever the DOD, whoever happens to be involved in the veterans and caregivers case, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they'll be the ones to hopefully counsel those two on the possibility that this benefit may be uh, within their reach. Mm -hmm. And they begin the application process, which requires submitting a form to VA. Um, There's a caregiver support coordinator at every VA hospital. So that person will get the form and begin the assessment process, which is uh, a home evaluation looking through medical records, looking at the treatment plan, because that's a big part of it. The treatment plan is ideally supposed to demonstrate the veteran's ability to get better. Mm-hmm. So if they've got traumatic stress, the plan is you go to all your appointments, you, you get to a point where you don't need this benefit anymore because you're better, which of course is ludicrous because I don't think anybody is ever fully recovered from post-traumatic stress. It's just too situational. I know of veterans from past wars who had episodes hit them on 9-11 because, you know, mm-hmm. even though it was years later from, from Vietnam, this, yeah. that triggered it. So you never know. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, you, you go through the application process, you get a home evaluation, and then the support begins if you're approved. I'd love to hear if you have any stories, stories that you're hearing, examples of folks who have been dropped. Well, I, unfortunately, because I've been so engrossed in this issue, I have many stories. Yeah, I'll bet. I think the one that, I, I think the one that probably hit me the hardest was was the first one that I heard because that one came out of nowhere. It was a, a Marine who had severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, not a lot of physical injuries, but that, that doesn't matter. I mean, I know, I know folks with traumatic brain injuries that look perfectly fine, but mm-hmm. they can't get through a full day without, you know, somebody assisting. And, um, and it's mainly because they make bad judgments that are unsafe, and that, that gets them in, into a position where you need to have somebody with you. But it wasn't so much that the caregiver was dropped as much as it was how it happened. It was so sudden and without due process 
that I thought this isn't right. And you've got this person who served multiple deployments, a uh, wife who who's getting these benefits but is, isn't full-time working because the benefits help. And this idea being floated out there that it's, it's sort of like a welfare yeah. benefit. They're not choosing not to work because they're getting a lot of money. They're not getting rich off of this stipend. It's the other things that come with it that they're being cut off from. And that's the part that worried me the most when I first heard of that very first case. It's because I'm thinking, are they just going to deny her the support that they've been promising all this time? Or, I mean, how does that work where you just cut somebody off and, and things are just supposed to get better for them at that point? So I think that was the main, and I, of course, I can't reveal the names and, and yeah. that type of thing because we have that legal relationship with them. But, but I think the very first case was the one that stung the most. And then when you, when, when I started to hear these subsequent cases, um, you know, it just didn't surprise me because this is apparently how things are going to be. And it was that way until the Secretary of Department of Veterans Affairs um, put a moratorium on the revocations. Mm-hmm. And how is that person doing today? Well, I know she's very active with uh, another advocacy group. We work with them, but a lot of her advocacy was born from her experience as a caregiver. She was involved with, uh, you know, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. You know, my wife and 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 she met through that relationship, so that mm-hmm. was a connection they made. And um, she's employed. I think the you know what goes on behind their their closed doors is I can only imagine. Um, yeah. You know, with having fewer resources, she needs to be at work more because, you know, she has to bring money into the home and maybe the family has to, you know, more of the family has to share the burden. I know they have kids, so they're, they're you know, they're going to make it through. He's a Marine. She's a strong woman. It's just a shame that it had to happen the way it did. Yeah. It seems like members of the military are really sort of expected to compartmentalize their experiences, to sort of put them in a box and keep them away from everyone else. How does this contribute to our ability or lack of ability to understand the needs of military families and their caregivers. This is a cultural sort of question I'm throwing yeah. at you that I'd love yeah. to hear your view on. Well, of course, you said it right. The uh, The military member is going to be the one that won't tell you everything or won't be the best historian, but that's why you have to get to the caregivers because they're, they're, they're going to tell you everything. They're going to have the best insights into this person's life. They're going to know when this when those the danger of suicide is lurking, you know, they'll just know more. And and if you're not engaging caregivers, you're cutting off a lot of information that you would otherwise not be able to get from the military member. You know, that's just the way it is. I think it'll it'll never change. You're always going to have folks who serve in uniform that don't want to complain. Their pain is, you know, their pain is relative to the pain of losing a buddy or somebody who got, you know, limb blown off, um, some of these guys, just because they don't have any grievous injuries, that's what kills them inside. Yeah. You know, and that's unique to the veteran community, and they're not going to talk about it. They're not going to come to somebody, maybe a psychologist or a fellow, you know, a peer mentor, but they're not going to make it obvious that they're hurting. And, and that's the part that's scary because, the you know, you talk to veterans who either attempted suicide or you look at cases where there was a suicide uh, that was, you know, when somebody actually did follow through, you could see the indicators if you know what to look for. And so that's why you have to have veterans advocates and caregivers work together to look for those signs Mm -hmm. so that when they are compartmentalizing, um, you know, we can pull it out of them. Right. I think this this whole notion of thanking folks for their service is well intended. And I'm, I'm really interested in that 
sort of disconnect and how we support military vets and their caregivers instead of saying thank you for your service, which is fine and well-intentioned. So I'm asking what can folks do to support military vets and their caregivers instead of saying thank you for your service? You know, I'm glad you asked that because I have another article that just went out that talks about that very subject. Treating veterans well is a national security issue. Mm-hmm. If you treat them well, it's the best recruitment strategy for the future military. You know, these, these younger generations that are just now coming of age and will join or not join the military based on what they see. I think that hearing thank you for your service was great in the beginning when it didn't feel, you know, perfunctory. But over time, it, you hear it so much, you become deaf to it. Not that you believe people aren't thankful, sure. but you're right what more have you done to thank me, not me specifically, but to thank these veterans for their service? Did you hire one of these men or women? Did you patronize a veteran-owned business? Did you give up your seat in first class? Did you use your travel points to maybe get a veteran a ticket to go to the wheelchair games or to go to one of these other adaptive sports, you know, these big national events? Did you visit a VA hospital during Christmas and maybe hand out gifts, you know, even if it's just you know, a bag of clean socks with candy, toothbrush, and some razor. I mean, did you demonstrate anything beyond what was easy, which is thank you for your service? That's just not enough anymore. Not when we understand why you're thanking us. I said in the op-ed, these folks are thankful and love the troops because they don't have to be the troops. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with people not serving in the military. But it can't just stop with being thankful just because you didn't have to go. There's got to be some sacrifice made. That's why I don't buy it when Congress tells you know veterans, uh, advocates, that something is too expensive. It wasn't expensive when you sent them off to fight. Yeah. It wasn't too expensive. Yep. All right? And so when they come back, you can't treat them like they're looking for a handout. They, they don't, they'd rather not have missing limbs. They'd rather not have all those things. They'd rather be back in uniform fighting or serving. But because this happened at their expense, that's what their accrued cost means. There is a growing cost. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you don't pay your credit card debt, what happens? It increases exponentially. It keeps going up. And the longer these men and women serve in combat, the, more, the higher the likelihood that they're going to get injured in some way. And when they do, it is going to be very expensive. So you either have to look at the cost up front by fighting wars differently, which may not be an option right now, or allow these the military to do what it does but be willing to pay that price now what's the trade-off i don't know they're they're paid to figure that out yeah i don't don't get pulled into debates where i've got to figure out for them how to pay for it i don't want to hear that i want them to tell me how are you going to pay for it not you know the fact that it's too too expensive now Mm -hmm. that the uh you know now that you've enjoyed the benefit of the cost without having to pay the cost Mm mm-hmm And what would you like to see change in terms of the way clinical decisions are made about veterans? It seems very scattershot. I am speaking from Mm -hmm. completely on the outside and not really knowing, but I would love to hear your take on that. Well, I guess it's easy for our, in our service offices, the 70 you mentioned, we have benefits experts that we train. It takes a 14-month training program. So they become really, really good at prosecuting claims that involve complex disabilities. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for us because we know how to assemble the evidence, get the right medical evidence, the right medical opinions, and present the case to what is often an inexperienced VA raider. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an easy easy uh, task for us. I think where it becomes a little bit tough is when you start to deal with things like need, things like, for example, 
if I'm paralyzed or if I have two missing limbs and I use a wheelchair or a prosthetic limbs to get to work, am I still disabled? And that's the question that I think is, is dangerous to ask because you're, you're looking at the function, but what's not factored in is, okay, yeah, I can get in a wheelchair and do an eight-hour workday, but also it takes me three times longer to get showered and to get dressed as it would somebody who doesn't mm-hmm. have these afflictions. It also comes with, you know, a medication regimen, you know, some other, uh, you know, pain issues, things that get managed over the day that are completely invisible to somebody who's trying to determine whether this person in a wheelchair is, in fact, disabled based simply on the fact that he or she can earn a paycheck. I think it's unfair, and I think that's where our country is looking to do this thing on the cheap, looking to have its defense on the cheap by asking questions like, does having prosthetics, you know, erase the disability? Well, it doesn't. It shortens your life in many cases. It, it, It impacts other aspects of life, just the ability to get out and socialize and to date. All those things impact your prospects for the future. People with families, there's a different stature you enjoy in society when you have a family. But if you haven't had the opportunity to deal with your identity issues, get married, have kids, you never really ascend like somebody else would at that age who, say, went to college and didn't lose a limb. Yeah. So there are, there are costs that it's just so hard to bring that across to people who are not in this world that we're in. It's military veteran world that we're in is what I meant. Right. I'm sure you're re- you're familiar with this report that was done for NPR by Quill Lawrence, who profiled Alicia Graham, and who's a caregiver for her husband, Jim, who was a Navy corpsman. Uh, you're familiar with that story, correct? I think I'm vaguely familiar. I okay. have to revisit some of the details of it. Okay. Too. He was a combat medic for 13 years, and he sustained mm-hmm. a brain injury in 2006. And the VA was providing them with a stipend of $2,000 a month plus health insurance, respite, and support. And then one day they got a letter from the department saying that Jim no longer qualified for a caregiver to help with Mm -hmm. his daily life. He was no longer clinically eligible. And Jim says the problem is more, this is just so moving, because of course he's the one who's physically debilitated, but he's saying the problem is more about Alicia's hard work no longer being recognized. I, I think I may have touched on this before, but... How are families like Alicia and Jim making up the shortfall? What happens when they go off the rolls? Okay, so you get the letter, and typically when, you're, when your benefits are stopped for whatever reason, there is a due process period. You okay. normally get 30 days to ask for a hearing or 60 days to do a written appeal, and it gets reviewed. And the benefit doesn't stop until that appeal process is done if you've met the requirements for an appeal okay. in time. And so you get time to prepare for it. What wasn't happening in these cases is they weren't they weren't receiving any notice. Oh. And so if you can imagine, if this is, you know, you're getting $3,000, suddenly you can't pay your rent. Suddenly yeah. you can't do, you know, the things that ordinary people do who don't have these challenges on top of the fact that the stress of, of being hit with this out of the blue. And what do people do when that happens? They have to get assistance from somewhere. Of course, they're going to fight and try to get the benefit back, but they've got to borrow money from family. They've got to look at maybe what expenses or, you know, quality of life things they'll have to give up. Maybe you quit more coupons. I don't, you know, but it, it, it they shouldn't live, you know, in near poverty after someone served and has become wounded because the VA doesn't have a process in place that fairly deals with these matters. I'm not saying everybody that's been revoked is one of these cases. There are some people who they change caregivers or the caregiver and the veteran divorce. You know, So there are many instances where 
the revocation needed to happen. But for yeah. the ones where mm-hmm. they just simply got a letter in the mail, not even a phone call, but a letter in the mail saying you're going to be cut off next month, I just imagine what would you do if this was you know, a significant portion of your income. You'd have to tell the landlord you know, or the mortgage company, I, I can't make it this month or until I get a job and then you're in a rush to find a job or something like that. Of course, you've got your caregiver duties that you've got to worry about. So you become, there's, there's this danger of becoming the people that live on the margins of society because of the, the measures you'll have to take to, to sustain you know, some semblance of a lifestyle after this happens. Mm-hmm. And what, what is the climate now, in your view, in Washington for addressing some of these concerns? Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that they've stopped the revocations was a good thing. That doesn't mean that that's going to do the ones any good who are already revoked. So mm-hmm. I am still wondering how they're going to be handled. Um, I think it's good that they stopped it. So at least, you know, we're not seeing this problem grow. But that doesn't mean the revocations won't continue. They may very well be looking for a way to revoke more fairly, yet all these folks are still going to get revoked. And I think the unfortunate part is the messaging was wrong from the beginning. They're being told, they being the recipients, Mm -hmm. are being told that this was never intended to be a permanent benefit. Well, you didn't tell them that in the beginning. You should have told them that in the beginning if that was the case. And if you only planned for 4,000 and you ended up serving 35,000, which was the actual number, Hmm. well, you know what? That's bad management on your part. You, You know, this was mismanaged. Yeah. You know, and, and somebody probably should pay in some way for that. I mean, if this is affecting that many people and it's not the beneficiaries, they're the ones receiving the message. It's not their job to figure out what you really meant. So, you know, I, I think they've got some work to do. I think the VA secretary has finally made this as a uh, pr- priority after being distracted with other priorities, which which is understandable. There are other things that he has to deal with, but they're finally getting the attention on this issue that they should have gotten, uh, you know, months ago, maybe even a year ago. And the, the Congress had a roundtable hearing that I attended. And hmm. I don't know if we got anything done, but we were there to inform mm-hmm. the members of the House Veterans Affairs Committee about the consequences of messing this up and, and our hope that they can fix this before more families are impacted. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain your optimistic attitude? How do you keep going? You know, you're talking to a guy like many others who are in, in our circle of advocacy who woke up one day and, and my life was completely turned upside down, I, I think I said to somebody at one point, every day after this is, is going to be better. It has to because there is no lower depth I can fall than where I've fallen right now mm. when you're completely paralyzed and, mm. and you're, you're, uh, you can hear a machine maintaining your breathing. Mm. No, there's nothing lower. So once I was able to come out of that experience over the two years and enjoy life. I've even had a, a son who's four right now since oh, then. So great. it's, you know, well, my wife had the son. I I, was, <laughs> I, cont- I contributed in a way, but, uh, but I've been able to live a full life. And I think yeah. that the optimism comes from actually living the experience of someone who, where hope had to be the only thing that could die. I mean, that was it. There was nothing else. So hope got me through it. And it is my hope that a lot of other folks who are facing either the same circumstance or something similar in terms of its impact on your self-identity, your mood, your vision for the future. Don't give up. You know, unfortunately, I know a few men, uh, mostly men, mm-hmm. who, have, uh, who, have, who have taken their lives and have given up because they didn't see that hope. But we got to give people hope who have, who have sacrificed for this country. 
You wrote, now that our country has set a standard for what caring for caregivers entails, it's time to ensure that no caregiver is left to deal with the invisible costs of war alone. Whether a caregiver is helping a veteran who left a piece of him or herself in the mountains of Afghanistan or the jungles of Vietnam. So this Memorial Day, how can folks best honor our fallen? I'm thinking of the, of the right answer because, yeah. you know, your audience, you know, we want to inform them. I don't want to talk about things like don't have barbecues or don't treat Memorial Day like it's a holiday just based on getting time off from work, things like that. People should celebrate their freedom. I think Memorial Day and, and those moments are a time to reflect. But if you don't have any connection to someone who was killed in action, take your kids to go visit Arlington. And even if you didn't serve or take them to visit a veteran cemetery or if you know of someone in your family who died, take the kids, the ones that have no idea what this sacrifice means, have them bring some flowers or bring a flag to a cemetery at some point during the weekend and talk them through the importance of service. Sometimes that service is costly, but it's the one thing that makes us different from any country is you've got people who are willing to do this and they're not forced to do it. You know, they do it on their own free will and make the next generation understand that, that their freedom is not something they can take for granted. You know, you just had um, the bombing happen in Britain yesterday, I believe, at a mm. concert. Right, um, right. And we've had, you know, 9-11 happen and some other events, you know, that were smaller in scale but had a similar effect. Mm. The only thing standing between us and that are the folks that are in the ground in many cases. So I think that you would do the country a service by this Memorial Day, just taking your child or taking your family, you know, or just going to visit, even if you're by yourself, just go and just deliberate on what it meant for these men and women to give their lives for the country, pray for them, pray for their families, and just understand that a lot of this is still being paid by fewer and fewer people. A lot of the cost is being paid by fewer and fewer people in this country. I want to give you the opportunity to offer any last thoughts. Anything else? Well, my only thought is, and I think I've probably said it already, the best defense or the best recruiting tool for our country is to treat veterans and their caregivers well. There are many cases, and I think more often than not, when you serve, you come out of the service, you're better off in, in terms of your stature in society. Most have education that they wouldn't have had had they not served. You get good jobs in many cases. It's not always a sad story. But we have to have that the rule rather than the exception. And it starts with everyday citizens understanding what's going on at the federal government level. Vote your conscience. Vote in a way that makes life better for veterans, know the issues, things like that, and be a part of why things get better, not just lament why things are, are bad right now. And find a way to get involved. Like I said, hire a veteran, patronize a veteran-owned business. There are a lot of things we can do to show people that we really, truly do thank you for your service. U.S. Marine Corps veteran Sherman Gillums, Jr., he is the executive director of Paralyzed Veterans of America, a 71-year-old organization founded to support the special needs of veterans of the armed forces who have experienced spinal cord injury or dysfunction. We will have a link on the AgeWise website to the organization where you can learn more about its supports and services for veterans and find a Paralyzed Veterans chapter near you. Sherman Gillums, Jr., thank you so much for being on the show and for all that you're doing to support military veterans and their caregivers. Thank you, Jennifer, for helping us get our message out. Thank okay. you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. 
rate us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.